Scott, I would ask you if you know anyone who's done much time in the big house, in the pen, but you know me, so I don't even have to ask you that question, but apparently you you learned a <laughs> another story for another opus. I was about to say, hey. <laughs> but apparently you learned of someone else in your life who has spent a little time behind bars, your very own father. My dad was in, in county. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to have, you know, your dad was in town. It was great for you to bring him over, for us to have dinner, for me to hear all of his stories, me and Dell, his his, uh, you know, post-World War II occupied Germany stories of all the women in the bars who were trying to grab his attention for yeah. a chance at a better life or what they would expect to be. He he told all, all sorts of stories, all sort of, there was all so sort many, of yarn spinning. There was so many wrinkles, so many new layers to stories that I had kind of gotten, you know, the general idea of. Yeah. I don't know what it was about you two, but he, man, he just poured it out in front of you. I mean, he was drinking that wine, and then by the time he got to the cannabis, uh -huh. your dad is, a, is an advocate. I love seeing <laughs> senior advocates for cannabis. But anyway, I'm bringing him up because he inspired me. Shout out to Darl. He inspired me to start this opus of Triloquy uh, with a downbeat that's sort of father-themed or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, dad-themed. I think about America's dad over the generations, usually through pop culture, whatever television show was on at the time. Who would you say was, for your generation, for your being a youngster, America's dad? Who would you put in that category? Probably Robert Reed. And what is Robert Reed known for? Tom Brady. From, oh, the from the Brady, Brady Bunch. Bunch. Yep. Brady, I, I know Nick at Night, Brady Bunch. I watched it a little bit in, in retrospect. It's actually interesting. A lot of people don't talk about the Partridge family. I'm more yeah. familiar with that one is than that Brady right? Bunch, actually. Okay, so here's this is going to I this will lay out which era you were watching the Brady Bunch. Are okay. you are you pre or post Oliver? I don't remember Oliver. At all, all right. Okay. You're on the good side. All right. <laughs> oh, okay. Another was, one. Well, don't say Oliver was the, the housekeeper or something. <laughs> no, you, you know you know what it's like whenever a show is starting to tank, it's starting to outlive its audience or okay. something like that. They'll introduce somebody new. Oh, a new character or something. And right. then here comes Oliver, their second cousin or oh, something. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, because yeah, I guess they already had a housekeeper. I don't remember her name. Alice. Oh, Alice. I, I told you, I'm not as familiar with that one. Hmm. I do know there, there's like a grown-up Christmas special or one yep. where the youngest brother is a NASCAR driver. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, so so shout out, shout out to your generation, Brady Bunch. Well, <laughs> when I was thinking about who would be America's father from my perspective in the pop culture sort of way, I, I couldn't help but to think of James Avery, Uncle Phil from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So in thinking about all of the different moments that Uncle Phil had on this show, showing his fatherly uh, nature. Um, I was reminded of one of those classic, classic, classic moments from the show that actually showcases Will Smith a little bit more than James Avery. But when we talk about fatherhood, you know, and the stories that I got to hear your dad say, you know, the stories that I get to hear my dad talk about when we're on the phone or when I visit, I think it's important not to take for granted the fact that we had our fathers in our lives. And, you know, there was, a, yeah. there was an episode of uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that uh, sort of got to that directly. Uh, Will's character on the show never knew his father, and uh, the guy popped back into his life only to abandon him again. And uh, the episode sort of ended uh, with this scene. Let's take a listen. Hey, you know what? You ain't got to do no nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old. You know, ain't like I'm gonna be sitting up every night asking my mom when's Daddy coming home. You know, who needs him? 
Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good attitude, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? You did. Got through my first day without him, right? Mm -hmm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Down with him! I ain't need him then, and I don't need him now. Will. Will. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm gonna get through college without him. I'm gonna get a great job without him. I'm gonna marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm gonna be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. Ooh. I remember when that was on TV. I remember watching that live, and Will Smith, the real person, he knows his father. So it's not like those feelings were coming out in this performance. But his ability to really put forward that emotion on, on in front of a live studio audience. You know, back and remember back in those days, it's not like it was done completely in studio. There were people there watching that and the stories, you know, uh, that they talk about afterwards, how everyone in the audience was in tears, how, uh, how Will had to sort of be talked into, you know, giving all of your emotion. And it's James Avery who helped him get there. It chokes me up watching. This is that. the first time I this is the first time I've seen it, and that shook me. Yeah. His response really shook me. Yeah. So in in, in and honor. Grateful for you my know, dad. And uh, you know, rest in peace now to uh, James Avery, uh, an incredible figure, incredible actor whose art really showed America, what a father is. So, you know, mm -hmm, I was thinking mm -hmm. a lot about that, having uh, met your father this past weekend. Shout out to my dad. You know, he he bought me my first flute. He's he supported all of my harebrained ideas along the way. <laughs> you know, what is music? What what do I do now? Who knows? But he supports me. So yeah, shout out, shout out to all the fathers as we get started here this week. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 122. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you for coming back and keeping this show a vital part of the music ecosystem. More people are talking about this, Scott. There, uh, there's a, a program happening right now over at the University of Southern California where they're bringing in people to teach single classes in lieu of, not in lieu of, but as they you know try to make their uh, staff uh, and faculty more diverse. They're saying, mm -hmm. well, in the meantime, let's get some people in here teaching these classes anyway. For one of those, I've learned, shout out to John Solpayamanan, that there are opuses of triloquy that are required listenings oh, in, in advance of some of these guest <laughs> lectures. So, so we've made it. We've made it to the Ivies of the West. So, wow. <laughs> so thank you all to all, so all of that to say thank you to the returning listeners for just keep, for keeping us there. We're, we're, we're really a part of the mix and it wouldn't be possible without y'all thank you so much to the new listeners this is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music we reframe what that means especially for us here on this part of the globe with the diverse populations and musical cultures that here we reframe that phrase classical music and we take conversations and stories and pair them with that all in a all as a means of decolonizing that phrase classical music thank you so much for checking us out you can find more 
more information on the Triloquy podcast at Triloquy.org. Support for the Triloquy podcast comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information on them at shuttleworthfoundation.org. I would also like to thank Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul for your generous support of Triloquy and to listeners just like you. If you would like to donate, visit <laughs> triloquy.org and you can do that. Before we get into the first movement, Scott, see, I was so caught up in Will Smith's performance. I forgot to actually bring up one of the stories that your dad told that struck me, that that grabbed me. At one point, maybe we had made it to dessert at this point. Mm-hmm. I asked your dad, well, tell me something about the civil rights era. What were you up to? And I was I was prepared for anything. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but he told the story of um, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, there were riots all over the country, you know, right. which we, were, we have lived at this point. We, you were, know? we were stationed at a uh, at an air base in North Carolina, Goldsboro, yeah. North Carolina. And he talked about how he knew someone who, a black man, who was accused of throwing a brick through the windshield of a car. Mm-hmm. Apparently his story was that the car was trying to run him over, so he threw the brick and so Anyway. I could see that at that time. By the time it got down to this black man needing a character witness, your dad was ready to stick his neck out and speak up with uh, speak up for him. Now, do you remember what your dad said happened to that man though? He stood up, the judge said guilty. Right off the bat. Hammer, I mean without hearing anything. The man the stood up, the judge saw a black man right. standing there and said, oh, "Okay, you must be guilty." Right. Isn't isn't and that something? Dad's sitting there going, "Well, wait. I I I thought that I was supposed to I thought I was being the character witness here. What's going on there? So yeah, um, I I had not heard that piece before. Well, I, that I, story. I appreciated that story from him because you know at the end of the day, a lot of folks. Let's keep it trill. This is called triloquy. A lot of white people his age have a lot of stories that deal with folks of different races. I feel like a lot of those folks don't have a story like your dad has. They have a story about inhibiting somebody or getting somebody out of the way or making life harder mm. for a person of color. But, you know, on the contrary, your dad has uh, the the ability to talk about how he did what he could for someone. And and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to do here. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to do for y'all. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Got to tie it back in. Let's get it into this first movement. Can I throw out just a quick flat here? A quick flat. Yes, a quick okay. flat to COVID. And I have to shout out yeah. uh, my cousin Bobby Fuller and mm. my Aunt June Fuller. And that entire branch of my family tree got hit hard with COVID. Bobby died uh, alone in the hospital because mm-hmm. everybody was sick. And my Aunt June was 93. I didn't think anything was going to take her down. And she got it and she passed. I'm not, I haven't uh, gotten an update to how everybody else is doing. I'm thinking about them. Shout out to you. And you guys, just if you're not going to get the shot, just wear the mask, one or the other, please, something. Are you going to, and I know that everybody, I know that everybody listening here is probably, probably already vaxxed. So I'm preaching to the converted. Are are you getting your booster or have you gotten your booster? I haven't gotten notification that I'm, that I'm able yet. My, I just got mine in May. 
Mm. So it'll probably be next month if I'm able. And I'm Moderna. They I, maybe by this time they've announced a Moderna booster, but yeah. it's 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 still very serious out here. You know, for the past two weeks I've been talking about travel. Week before last, when I was in Chicago, masks and all that stuff was taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. Even more so in New York, I've traveled with my vaccine card because they wanted to see it oh, for me okay. to get into this concert or this bar or whatever. So yeah, P- PSA, everybody, please do your things covid where it's in what did they say endemic it's endemic now, it's endemic yeah. now. so where you wear your mask please they don't they don't care here uh more here than many other places right i'll say no you're but right just just do what you can for you know not only for yourself but your fellow man I'm, i i can preach here for a minute about that but <laughs> yes and your fellow woman as well your fellow person anyway all right so um rest in rest in peace to to all, all yeah. your family members yeah um, I'm I'm a I'm a swing us back up here and and get us started with a sharp. So, uh, as we talk about all of the challenges that we have uh, in in this field of so-called classical music, o- over our time working on this podcast, I am seeing some progress, and you know, not only in some of the language and some of the programming, but of course in some of the personnel who are getting to you know be on certain stages and and do certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked a lot about. Um, the power of not just a, a black orchestra, a diverse orchestra, but diverse conductors, making sure that women and people of color are also filling those spaces. And friend of the show, a member of the Triloquy family, Brandon Keith Brown, mm. is plowing ahead and doing some really incredible things. If you don't know uh, who Brandon Keith Brown is, he's a, a black American conductor who has been living in Europe for the past uh, several years, mm-hmm. uh, mainly in Germany, um, as far as I know. But Brandon Keith Brown actually had the opportunity to conduct Chiniki uh, this past weekend back on October 17th. And there was a, a really nice uh, write-up about it that uh, I wanted uh, to share. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, just read a little bit uh, about the concert here. Um, it describes uh, pieces on the concert um, on the first half uh, as a fusion of Western music with evocative instruments and vocals from Nigeria, Kenya, and Bangladesh, countries severely affected by climate change. Mm-hmm. As we continue to see music that speaks to more diverse populations and uh, more diverse narratives, I think uh, more of the climate change conversation is coming in and uh, climate change music. So this concert that he got to lead with the Chinookoo Orchestra involved a bit of that feel, some of that, you know, so I hate the phrase world music. Music, but you know uh, perspectives and and sounds from other sure. parts of the world than than Western uh, Europe that not only highlight the importance of those diverse sounds but the issue of climate change. Uh, I, I have to shout out. I will be remiss if I didn't shout out Gabriella Lena Frank, the composer, uh, because she's been writing music. Um, about climate change for a long time now. Actually, the very I'll never forget now the the very last piece of music I aired. Um, at my previous job mm-hmm. was music by Gabriella Lena Frank because that that's a conversation that we need to be having more about the climate change and and how that impacts everything anyway that was um uh, the first part of the concert um it, this article um from the Ickley Gazette I hope I'm pronouncing that I think British. it's Ilkley yeah, Ilkley that uh that uh, English town uh, it goes on to say here Western classical music however dominated the program first of all Scott I have to say Western classical music the language is is becoming more regular in these spaces would you say normalized would you go that far almost and and maybe it's some particularly 
uh, you know, so-called woke people at, at this publication, but that that jumped out at me. You know, recognizing that the music that did, wasn't necessarily from that Western tradition on the first part of this concert, it's classical, right. not Western classical, but you know, anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to highlight that. I, I really uh, appreciated uh, seeing that. Uh, we had a, a violin uh, concerto by Joseph Bologna, who we've talked a lot about, and then. Excuse me, Tchaikovsky's very first symphony. So, uh, when, when we you know go into this concert, we have the uh, the the contemporary, we have the Joseph Bologna, and we have Tchaikovsky's first. Is this a program that you would consider moving in the in the right direction? It is, you know, of of the three pieces we've talked about, two of them have been by Black people, right? In the current environment yeah i would say that that is a step (laughs) and especially for europe because i've I've talked with a lot of folks over there and apparently the the fight the fight is much more hard fought over there is it good you know at ground zero of all of this so (laughs) let me put it this way if i were the casual concert goer somebody who went to a few concerts a season i'd say oh look at that Mm. that's my generalization yeah So I would say in a generalization, yeah, that looks like it's stepping in that direction. When we talk about highlighting more contemporary music composers who haven't always been given the platform, where do you weigh, or how do you weigh that next to lesser known works by the composers? We know, we know Chike 4, we know Chike 5, we know Chike 6. Chike's first, Tchaikovsky's very first symphony isn't one that a lot of folks know. So, I mean, maybe that fits positively in is there. That, <laughs> is that the B-side? Sure. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The, the moldy oldie. It's interesting how composers' early works are the B-sides in, in many cases. Uh, right. You know? And then, you know, then there's people like me over here going, I like his early stuff. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask you this. I've always seen that as winter dreams, mm-hmm. not winter daydreams. Oh, so okay. now maybe that, different translation. Now all of a sudden that changes the subtitle of the symphony. Right. You're saying, yeah. So now all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, daydreams to me is different than a dream. So now I'm going to have to listen to it with a different perspective going in. They had, um, I don't know, what were they smoking over there in Russia during Tchaikovsky's time? Maybe some opium or Probably something. A, what would have been, wasn't inspired everybody inspired a daydream? <laughs> <laughs> Especially as cold as it is over there and everything. <laughs> uh, it, uh, let, let me see. We're, this is how we chase that uh, the rabbit off the snow path, right? Um, <laughs> the article says here, uh, the finest of Tchaikovsky's early symphonies filled the second half. Brandon Keith Brown presided over a sparkling performance of the infrequently played Winter Daydream Symphony Number. No. 1 one in G minor. So a sparkling performance, the black conductors, Brandon Keith Brown, you know, of all of them, because, you know, Brandon, and and he would be comfortable with me saying this, he's unapologetic in, in what he wants. And a lot of these orchestras aren't ready. A lot of the orchestras aren't ready. Uh, if, if anyone who doesn't know specifically sort of the story of Maestro Brown, just uh, Google his name. There were some issues at Brown University. Apparently he was let go from there years ago for being too strict. I know so I'll, I'm going to keep a trail on this podcast. I know some black orchestras that will not have him because they aren't happy with the way that he leads rehearsals and there's one thing to say, you know, I often feel like I'm straddling the fence. It's one thing, you know, for me to accept the fact that the the structures of Western classical music, even the rehearsal process, need to be broken down. And no one would question 
I don't know. Name name your famous Pavel Yerevi or uh, the is it now the late the late Bernard Haitink? You know all of yeah. these big name white men composers. No one would dare say that they're being too rough or too strict. So why are we saying this about BKB? That and you know, so right. so who, whoever needs that. Also, uh, since you're already touch your spirit, since you're <laughs> <laughs> since you're already here at Triloquy, just go back to forty seven and forty eight. Opus forty seven and yeah, he 48. was a double feature is uh, Brandon's feature here. So go back and listen to the man himself. Yeah, so anyway, shout out to uh, Brandon Keith Brown. We have to remember that when we're rooting for everybody black, that means we're rooting for everybody black, including those of us who found our way over there in Europe and dealing with things over at Ground Zero. I don't know that they would have me, especially, especially like in when we talk about Royal Hall and, and Royal this, they'd see me coming. They'd be like, Garrett, it's fine. It's fine. We we have the we have the hybrid. You can go watch from over there because I don't know if I put I don't know the respect I'm able to put on some of that colonial stuff. So was it Fresh Prince of Bel Air that in the end credits somebody ended up getting thrown out? It was always jazz. <laughs> that oh. would be me. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Classic. Thank you for breaking that up. <laughs> That's all I'm saying is that you know you could get your foot in the door just about anywhere, don't you think? Who. Amen, Brandon Keith Brown. You're over there doing it. You're doing it better than I could. Here's a little bit of the end of, <laughs> of uh, the third movement of Tchaikovsky's very first symphony to get us to our next accident. ending to the to the third movement there would you be satisfied with that program i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that i would complain because i, I would safe, be I would, safe <laughs> you gotta yeah i don't i don't have any buttons here we go the i'll only, do it for myself no it's, <laughs> the only the, I, I, the I, only buttons i have over here are for the air conditioner and the radio the the, the reason i hesitate because when I was first getting into radio, I thought it was very important to take Beethoven two and put it on the radio yeah. instead of five yeah. or nine. You know, so I I, I get it, um, but I I have to give uh, a little room here because I know that here in the United States we have more we have fewer limitations than some of those folks have over there when it comes to programming. Mm. And I've I've never tried to be a programmer or really even a musician over in Europe. But I, I understand from what I hear from you know from uh, conductors like Brandon Keith Brown and others musicians that it's it's much more difficult so you know and and that and that's why we need folks like the chinnakee orchestra because folks okay. aren't going to question the chinnakee orchestra for bringing in something black you know right, um right but like like no, we I always say dust in the corners there's always more room to go but yeah i don't know maybe, maybe i'm trying to be safe i don't know <laughs> yes i all, respect that all, bl respect all black everything and shout out to the folks like brandon keith brown who are trying to push us forward yes. so back on this side 
of the pond. So last week, we talked a little bit about Fire Shut Up in My Bones, the Terrence Blanchard opera. Well, as I was, you know, going through my other podcasts and listenings and keeping up with the news, I learned of a new Broadway play that's been running called Thoughts of a Colored Man. Apparently, this is the first Broadway production that's all black men. Uh, uh, at the head of this is uh, Candy Burris. A lot of folks know her as a, a reality star, Real Housewives of Atlanta, but she has Grammys and plaques, a, a legendary songwriter. So, you know, obviously to me anyway, obviously writing a play would be right up her alley and mm -hmm. uh, creating something that's totally black. I'll put the uh, link um, in the description for folks to learn more about it. But the conversation I want to have about this play on Broadway, Thoughts of a Color Man, is that it's made it to the culture TM, you know, the, the culture as it were, black folks who are, you know, insulated in some ways when it comes to uh, pop culture and all of that really focused in, have nothing to do with the arts, uh, Broadway, classical music, any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, they have gotten wind of this and are participating, buying tickets. And it's sort of a, a conversation on a lot of outlets. I heard about it on a on a hip hop show. They talked about thoughts of a colored man, this Broadway show. Mm -hmm. That sort of attention isn't being put on fire shut up in my bones and opera you know, and maybe not that it should or shouldn't, but I, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts with your time in theater. Mm -hmm. Did you see yourself, did you see the Shelter Belt Theater as having a leg up on uh, Opera Omaha as far as accessibility, as far as getting more diverse crowds in? I hear what you're saying. Sure. The biggest example is the absence of an orchestra. So an, or uh, so an orchestra kind of uh, gussies it up and makes it well, less accessible? Not necessarily for me, but let's just say that there are loads of people out there who are not adepts of classical music. They sure. don't, you know, they, they think that it's something their grandparents listen to mm -hmm. or that it's what comes through the speaker in the waiting room, right. some, you know, <laughs> in the elevator, uh, right. you know, while they're waiting to get their teeth drilled. So mm -hmm. there's all sorts of negativity. Sure, around it. sure. But that's removed from the equation. You can go in there dressed however you want. And nobody's going to, you know, say anything mm -hmm. about it. Um, yeah, I think uh, the cost is definitely far lower. Uh, it's definitely going to be something in their language, mm -hmm. you know, most likely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, a, there's a lot of leg ups. Uh, not to mention the fact that the shelter belt was in a former sandwich shop. So, I mean, it wasn't even a theater per se. You were walking into a storefront. So it felt extra accessible. Yeah, you know, for it, was, that it was like you know, it was um, it was theater in the moment. It was um, the the the, uh, the found location. The what do they call that when you do uh, a concert in a stairwell <laughs> or something? Just yeah, in, in the in the moment sort of thing. Non traditional space. Okay, non traditional space. But what what I'm thinking about now though is this is this play didn't make it to Broadway. This is where it was happening. So do you, um, and and I'm really asking this question, do you put Broadway up next to the other so-called great halls as, as someone who was a part of the theater world? Is Broadway that ivory tower that the Met is in, in the classical world? A lot of people think that. Um, I think that there is good art happening at levels that would compare with Broadway, mm -hmm. but they're just, that's not where they're being seen, not where they're being performed. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, some people see that as an ivory tower. Yes. <laughs> I would be, I would be one of them. So let me go ahead and just step out and say, yeah, there are, there are plenty of performances that are going off 
over here in the corners mm-hmm. or in the in the uh, unknown spaces that are just as quality as the Broadway shows. You're making me think of, shout out to Kwani's Floyd, something that she talks about all the time is that when arts and big arts institutions talk about bringing the arts to certain communities, Mm -hmm. they aren't Mm -hmm. realizing that those communities have arts. Right. It's not like you're introducing that, that concept to them it's, it might it might be something different but that's one of the missing puzzle pieces right. is that the institutions don't see that or don't give room for it so it was it was cool for me to be listening to something far away from the classical the so-called classical arts anyway and to learn about this broadway play i'm gonna i think it's closed at this point but i'm gonna see if there are are recreations other uh in other places i actually haven't been to a play since my uh since my grade school days i, I hate to say that but, we'll look up you know. mixed blood mixed blood theater if they're still running if yeah they've opened back up we'll head over there yeah i don't know much about uh this play thoughts of a colored man other than the fact that it sort of uh, deals with emotions. And we when we think of men, especially cisgendered men and emotion, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of healing and a lot of art to that can unpack. be created there. Yeah. Yep. Do you know the name, uh, Candy Burris, just knowing that name, if I said that name? I've heard it, but I wouldn't be able to connect her to anything that she had written. Yeah, really, you know, just legend in, in uh, Black communities. Again, I know I'll, I know a lot of the younger generation uh, will know her from Real Housewives of Atlanta, but wrote many, many, many hit songs. If you know the song um, No Scrubs, TLC, yeah, yeah. She, she wrote that one. Okay. Several um, Destiny's Child uh, songs, you know, the, the, the precursors of Beyonce, of Beyonce, you know, as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. But, um, since it's, it's, since this is the last opus before Halloween, we, we have to sprinkle some, some brand, some Halloween branding on there. Right. So okay. one, one of the, uh, many, uh, works that composer Candy Burris wrote was one made famous by an, by an artist called Blue Cantrell. The name of the tune is make me want to scream. That's sort of Halloween theme huh? We'll listen to a little bit of that to get us into our last accidental. made you scream this Halloween season? Any scary movies or or otherwise? <laughs> do you get do you get into the spirit of it all? Not not like I used to, but no. I did watch Midnight Mass. Okay. And that was good. And I'm not talking that there was any, you know, like terrible scary bits. There was just stuff that had me sitting there thinking, this is a Amazing. I mean, do you know how, how rare that happens anymore that you are just so drawn in by, by a film, by yeah. a show like that? Yeah, yeah. And it was one of those instances where I sat watching and then realized, you know what? For the last four or five minutes, this has been one continuous take. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a whole bunch of jumping around, and that's really theatrical. What's the name of that again? Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. I'll, I'll, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it seemed like uh, it seemed like they were shooting it kind of like a play. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, since this is the last opus of Triloquy before Halloween, 
had to put a little Halloween sauce on it. <laughs> what is it about the Oregon that gets people into the? Mood? I don't know. You could have st- <laughs> you could have stopped right there. <laughs> um, I remember in my early days of programming, I was kind of warned against Oregon music yep. because and the harpsichord. Who wants to hear that? But I. Harpsichord is one thing, but I can get into the organ music. Uh, you know, Kachachurian wrote a symphony that has, I think, 19 trumpets and organ. And it's 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 noisy. <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to give some room to the organ and give us some spooky music because this last accidental, this last flat that I have is just spooky and <laughs> in ways that I'm not sure how to even explain. I'm reading from Classic FM. It says here, German pop singer called... <laughs> I can't even read the title. German pop singer calls for Beethoven's body to be exhumed for a racial DNA test. Now, can Let's I stop just right there? <laughs> can I just ask one question? He has called for this. Does that mean it's actually going to happen? I mean, does he have any sway? Uh, does he have a front end loader that he's just going to go and dig the thing up? What? I don't think it's been actually announced that this is going to happen. Okay, so this is that would because we would see that specula- on CNN yeah. or something. This is all speculation. But this now. is a lot for someone to uh, officially be making the, the the call for that to for that to happen. I'll I'll, I'll read here just a little this bit. This is how horror movies start. It says <laughs> German singer Roberto Blanco has called for the mayor of Vienna to exhume Beethoven's body for a racial DNA test. The request is the latest in an over century old debate about the ethnicity of German born classical music giant. Beethoven died in Vienna in 1827, and Blanco addresses the city's mayor in a public YouTube video where he states his reasoning for uh, asking is so that we can see if he looks more like you than me. Okay, so. Uh, Roberto Blanco is black, by mm-hmm. the way, you know, mm-hmm. and basically he wants the, the mayor of Vienna to know that Beethoven was black after all. <laughs> all right. Uh, what do you, <laughs> it's spooky. What it's does, spooky because we're doing a lot. I, this, this is not what the DEI gods had in mind. That was <laughs> <You know? laughs> my question to you. What, what this, changes? This, this, is, this isn't what we're talking about. This isn't, what do you mean what changes? Oh, what changes if we find something right. out? Right. Now, so then all of a sudden are the, you know, the devotees of Beethoven, are they going to suddenly have a problem? Yes, they are. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> Maybe not all of them, but I just think it's sort of ghastly, ghoulish or... Ghoulish I overkill. Mean, it's, it's ghoulish uh, overkill. For, for this to actually... I mean, do you think we'll get there? Okay, so Mr. Blanco, hey, Frau Blanco, is just you know calling for it. What happens if they're like, okay, fine, let's let's just get y'all out of here once and for all. Let's dig up Beethoven and see what's up. Did you know that Haydn's head was gone from his grave for decades? Yep, yep, I did so know that part. Phrenolo- so these guys who were into phrenology, studying the bumps on your head. Mm-hmm. Dug him up, and then one of the guys just had it sitting there on his mantle for a couple decades. <laughs> Beethoven, uh, Haydn's skull. So if that was in eighteen, sure. Then here in twenty twenty one, sure. Come on, let's go. Let's go get. Let, let, what else do we have to do? <laughs> Are we? So so back to the question I was asking. Have we? Do you think we've gone too far if this actually happens? Yes. Yeah. I, I, yes. I agree. I agree. This is fun. This is a little fluffy article, and we can bat it. We can bat it around and all that kind of stuff. But if this actually goes through, 
then all I need is the the meme of the guy with all the papers up in the air because that's going to be me leaving. What do you know about Beethoven being black or or that? Like, have have you been involved in any of those stories, any of that rhetoric? Have sure. you written about it or thought about it? What what are your what's your experience uh, with I've, that conversation? I, I've I've never written about it. I don't think that that would change anything that I had to say about the, I would yeah. rather come up with something different. But, but what's your understanding of the rumor that Beethoven was black? I, was it his mother or his grandmother that was uh, partially black? I'm not sure. I think, half, they say, I think they say his grandmother. Yeah, that's it. Mm. You know, as early as high school, uh, and I'm really trying to think, I'm ninth grade for sure. So this would have been the year 2000. So as uh, 2001, maybe for um, uh, Black History Month, we we played the Ode to Joy, like a band arrangement of Ode to Joy on the Black History program, because my band director, my white woman band director, just taught us matter-of-factly that Beethoven was of African descent, and we put that in. Fast forward to uh, my days in undergraduate music history, you know you know me, you know, I'll mm-hmm. raise my hand and, <laughs> and say, actually, or I heard that, or whatever. Right. And, and the teacher- With 15 minutes left the, to the, go in class. The, the, the teacher was like, um- <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, she shot me down. <laughs> Shout out to Janet Page, Dr. Janet Page at the University of Memphis. Anyway, over um, over the course of my continued schooling, I would bring it up at uh, USC and the music history professors would kind of bat it down there. But I don't know. It didn't come from nowhere. And it's not like I was on some hotep extra, you know, black liberation, whatever, mm-hmm. learning about it. My band director at school is the one who exposed me to this idea at first. And it's it's been going around, as the article said, for over a century. So I don't know. If, if it's it that many people saying something, it must be something. For me, it doesn't make the music any better or any worse. Sure, I, There are still plenty of Beethoven's compositions that I'm going to listen to and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, and if he was uh, of mixed race that would not change that right right and i don't know he uh uh he knew black people that's what i mean to say like it's not like uh he's not like he was separated from blackness right right completely you know we know the story of george bridgetower and the way they fell out i'm sure there were many other people who he was in contact with whether it was a a chambermaid at this pub or or someone who lived with this person or you know just sure. f- fully fully integrated in in that way uh the 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 thing that people will say you know when when beethoven's darker skin is addressed they'll be like oh well he just liked to take walks have you never heard the pastoral symphony and mm-hmm. i'm like okay so <laughs> he he has a wide nose and dark skin because he likes to walk outside i do okay. remember how i first came about it somebody showed me a picture of his death mask Oh, and you're like, oh, who's that black man? <laughs> who's that brother well, look there? Look at it. No, I know. I'm not yeah. the death mask. I'll make it the I'll make it the photo this week. Okay, nice. Just, just so folks can can know what we're talking about. Anyway, uh, so shout out to the late great black composer Ludwig van Beethoven. <laughs> Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, the late. <laughs> <laughs> when when I was reading this, see the and you know, okay, so this is triloquy, right? When I was reading this article over here at Classic FM, who did they have in the advertising box? Mr. But Randall, Gooseby. but Randall Gooseby. Listen, incredible player. So that so first of all, they're like, okay, look, this is a black person who can play. We're talking about Beethoven maybe being black, and we're going to show you an image of a black 
Violinist. Hey everyone, I'm Violinist Randall Goodsby, and here are four black composers whose music and stories I think you should know about. Okay, so well that that'll that'll be linked shout out to randall gooseby i just thought it was very interesting that we get on classic fm to learn about beethoven's blackness and they just want to make sure they that we know that they have other black people in the mix where we aren't racist we aren't racist <laughs> you know what there might be some money thrown behind this all oh of a gosh. sudden because if they could prove that then that solves a lot of problems oh like what there's problems like what? They can program Beethoven with impunity. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're, I hadn't thought about that. So they're like, what? We've what? been playing it. We've been doing it for we, hundreds of years. We've been ahead of the curve. What are y'all talking have you about? Been? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. We we definitely don't need to uh, dig Beethoven up because we're damned <laughs> if we do, damned if we don't on that. Okay, yeah. um, so that's it for the first movement <laughs> this week uh, to get us into the. The second movement where we're going to take the second ending, talk about some of the music we've been listening to this past week. I don't want to transition with any Beethoven because... You don't. I mean, we, we've heard enough of it, right? Even for a black composer, we've heard plenty of Beethoven. See see me being equitable here? So <laughs> No, you. I'm on the same page. <laughs> um, so, you know, again... Last opus of Triloquy before Halloween. I've been thinking about some of the spooky music, maybe even more uh, some of the more contemporary spooky music. So I want to shine a light on uh, Michael Abels. When he wrote the score to Us that came out a couple of years ago, a lot of people were talking about it. I think it has a really um, incredible sort of, I don't know, this menacing theme mm-hmm. with the children's voices. Why do why do scary films love the the voices of children? <laughs> Probably the creepiest. <laughs> and then you know it's very percussive, very um, rhythmic, and then of course later on in it, you know when the beat drops, it's you know it gets me going. So let's listen to a bit of this to get us into the second movie. Did you watch it? You know, I keep keep starting it and (laughs) I'm kind of, I'm kind of a wuss with scary movies on my own now. Also, it was pretty scary. I mean, that's what I was going to say, especially the beginning. That's scary if you really put yourself in it. But I thought you were going to say it felt silly to you or something. No, but, but also, um, was it, no, get out that I'm nervous about because I don't, the the racial component (laughs) there, I just don't know if I'm ready to, for that kind of, you still have not seen that movie. You still haven't seen it. I'm nervous to watch it. I I flinch at at stuff like that's why I stopped watching uh, some series when you know the overt racism came out. I'm like I've I, we, we still have this. <laughs> I don't need to have it beaten over my head in my own home. That's funny. That's <laughs> funny. What we'll we'll watch. Well, I don't know. I, I want you to watch Get Out on your own, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. we'll we'll do that one of these triloquies. All right. <laughs> Maybe in the coming weeks. Anyway, we're here in the second movement where we're taking the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been repeating over the week and uh we give it a shout out we talk about why we have been repeating it i'm gonna um go first because i think uh the piece of music i have uh for this week can 
get us into you know keep us in some of the in some of those spooky moods especially uh because of the aesthetic of it so uh first and foremost i want to shout out lynn bailey who's been reaching out to me with information about different pieces of music that aren't played that much uh recordings that exist that don't get so much airtime and a piece of music that she put on my radar was a string quartet by charles mingus did you know that charles mingus wrote so-called straight music, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I I didn't know at all. Yeah, with with well, first of all, with your having uh, worked in jazz radio, where would you rate Charles Mingus? Would his recordings come in? I would imagine pretty regularly, right? You know? He was right up there with um, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. So they, you know, that was the heavy rotation artist. You know, yeah. he was he was definitely an H for heavy rotation. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we were talking about earlier the Tchaikovsky and the uh, Symphony Number no. One that doesn't get that much airtime right. in relation to its other things. I think this is another example of that yes on the on the black side of things but we 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 know a lot of the jazz standards but learning about a string quartet by charles mingus was really interesting to me just a, a little um information um about it as uh, provided by lynn bailey she talks uh, writes about how uh, the original score called for two violins two cellos and a vocalist so not the traditional the so-called traditional string quartet but a, a sort a, a slightly different arrangement. Well, uh, there exists now uh, the arrangement I'm going to share with you that is the two violins, the viola and cello, um, but a, along with uh, the vocalist. And uh, just just really incredible here, the incredible to hear the vocals uh, that are in this piece of music come from a poem called "The Clown," which is plenty scary for, for yeah, some people. That's enough. <laughs> and and just uh, another uh, really great example of how wide and broad the repertoire is, and how much there is to explore while we're around here, you know, playing Beethoven over and over again, you know, and and again. Shout out to the black composers like Beethoven, but there's there, there, there's more out there. So let's uh, I won't play the whole thing. I'll I'll link uh, where uh, y'all can go listen to the entire performance. A huge uh, shout out to Anton Lukosheviez. I hope I'm pronouncing your name uh, right, Lukosheviez. Anton Lukosheviez for giving me permission to uh, share this recording with y'all. Uh, the other uh, performers here are Elaine Michener, Gordon Mackey, and Mira Benjamin on violins. Uh, and Bridget Carey. So let's take a little listen to this, the string quartet of Charles Mingus. Thank you. 
to me about that aesthetic. So if you heard that blind outside of any context of genre or anything, would you pin that as Charles Mingus or, or anyone in the jazz world? Good question. No, I probably would associate with a 20th century composer. Mm-hmm. You know, Which and, he was, and, right. Right, Not and but of the stuff that I was putting on the air at the time. Sure, right? sure so, of, the, of the Western European sort. Or, you know, the whole East Coast school. Okay. You know, okay. Those, uh, all those folks. But um, I don't think that I would have called that a quartet. I would have thought of that as just like art song. Yeah. I guess to, to some extent, uh, that that is what it is. But here but when I go we, but categorizing when we, things. Well, but when we say art song, we're usually talking about piano and voice, right. which it, it doesn't have to be that. But I, I've, I've been listening to that this week and just really digging into uh, how that would fit into some tr- more traditional, so-called traditional programming, because we definitely have an American composer, uh, uh, you know, classical, that that traditional definition aside, a classic figure when it comes to American music and this black music that is very much black, but very much different than mm-hmm. the rest of uh, his catalog. Just really interesting to explore for me this week. If I had to say, if I was pressed on guessing the composer, I'm kind of like what Damien Strange writes. Yeah. You know, that I, could, yeah. I could hear that from his pen. Yeah. Contemporary uh, black music. So once again, thank you and shout out to Lynn Renee Bailey for putting that on my radar. I'll link uh, the Art Music Lounge, her personal blog that explores all sorts of other overlooked pieces of music by composers who we may know and composers who we may not know. Mm. Yeah. So be sure to go take a listen to that. What you got this week music wise? Well, it's kind of a nice coincidence that you brought in winter dreams mm-hmm. from Tchaikovsky because spending all this, uh, the last couple of days with my dad as my house guest and doing projects and all these sort of things. Put your dad uh, to work. Hearing, gracious. Hearing, Couldn't even sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm problematic and exploding. <laughs> he, when he came over here, he said, damn, this is the first time I'd have felt warm this whole trip. That's so you're freezing him over there, too. That's bollocks. <laughs> anyway, shout out to Darl. Go ahead. But as we were doing all of these projects, as he was sort of uh, imparting knowledge or looking over my shoulder as I did the work that he used to do, mm-hmm. uh it brings to mind the concept of the lion in winter. Have you heard of that? I don't think so. Okay, well, there's a play and a movie uh, that's called The Lion in Winter, but the concept is a once great and powerful force that is now feeling age. Mm. And Sure, know, me. And, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when, as w- my dad was a plumber before he retired, and, you know, we, we replaced all of the old supply lines in my house Mm -hmm. with brand new stuff. So it's all up to code and looking good. And it's, it was as if he was trying to hand off a scroll of knowledge, this bit of knowledge. And it makes me think of uh, the lion in winter, how he's coming to grips with not being able to, stand up from a crouched position mm-hmm. on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, that one of these days, I'm not going to have him to lean on. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I, I taught him recently how to hook his YouTube account from his phone up to a smart TV. And that's all he needed right? to know. <laughs> so he and I were, you know, kind of like what you and I do. We would trade who would pick the next song. And sure. so I did that with him. And I showed him something that we first watched together on PBS back in 2001. Hmm. Um, 
it was uh, live through PBS, Glenn Campbell, and it's Wichita Lineman is the, the song. And I brought that back because it, they're backed up by the South Dakota Symphony mm-hmm. is in that performance. And obviously, uh, Wichita Lineman has one of the best bass line solos in it. But the solo that Glenn gives in it, this was just sort of a little time machine backward. song is uh, about a blue collar a blue collar worker out there making sure that the world keeps turn keeps turning while there's somebody at home that he loves and tell listens. me more tell me more about Glenn Campbell Glenn Campbell was a member of the wrecking crew he was a you know a scratch studio musician oh and the wrecking on, crew was the band that just played for everybody well that was the guys that they were loosely known as the wrecking okay. crew Okay. And as soon as he uh, stepped out on his own, you know, Rhinestone Cowboy was huge, but I'm more of a Wichita lineman than a Rhinestone Cowboy for sure. Uh, And he uh, even recorded an album when he was in the final throes of dementia. He died in 2017. Mm. But uh, it reminds me of my dad. And there's, you know, I played other songs, uh, you know, Jason Isbell's uh, Am I the Last of My Kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I played for him. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down by Charlie Parr. You know. I wonder if this Glenn Campbell performance. You said this features the South Dakota Symphony. Mm-hmm. Does this get someone like your dad closer to the symphonic experience? Uh, maybe it would be a hard sell to get your dad in to go see Chike One, but 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 maybe if you said, well, the symphony is playing. You know, before he passed away, mm-hmm. the symphony is playing with Glenn Campbell. Oh, maybe that sure. would have been an easier sell for sure. And he, when I played this for him, he rem, he was reminded of Ray Charles and all the work mm-hmm. that he did with an orchestra uh, in the seventies. That was kind of a thing for country artists to have a big string orchestra behind him. It was like riding around in a big luxury car, you know, so the the concept, the strategy of taking these popular artists and putting them with orchestras has been around since the seventies. And here we are, Mm -hmm. is what you're telling me. I am telling you that we, that we still aren't mainstreaming that we have not normalized. That is the pops. That is the, the the side. There you go. That's the side piece. Okay. Well, you know, y'all, y'all get my point. Yes, I do. As, as much as I want to see, you know, Beyonce, Megan Thee Stallion, Drake, all these people in front of orchestras, that, that guitar solo was very, very beautiful to me. And when you have that body of strings behind it, and it wasn't just a string orchestra. It's winds back there. You know, they show the percussion and the and the uh, wind instruments as well. Guy playing marimba? That, that not only bridges a gap between a person and their local orchestra, but maybe even a person and the music by this person that they don't know, because I may be there for the orchestra and learn about Glenn Campbell mm. and and hear those solos and then get inspired by by that. So I, I, I think that's a, a perfect segue into the third movement, because um, in so many genres and in, in so many um, strategies toward building audience, we're leaving out some of the older sort, mm. uh, the the little bit 
of engagement, community engagement that happens, it seems like it's focused on the younger sort, maybe even uh, younger than me. But we have to remember that there are all sorts of folks to engage and additionally, all sorts of folks to celebrate. So to that, um, for the third movement this week, Bill Doggett returns to the podcast. Bill Doggett, if you don't know, has uh, been a, a representative for composers of color for decades now, an incredible lecturer, an incredible writer, someone who I've, I've really been uh, fortunate to know, to get to know mm. over uh, the course of working on Triloquy. Uh, well, anyway, Bill Doggett returns to talk a little bit about ageism as it applies to current uh, DEI sort of initiatives, specifically when it comes to composers and what composers are being platformed. Well, before we even get into it, I wonder if you have any uh, context or any thoughts, ideas about engagement or inclusivity focusing on the younger sort and sort of leaving the, the older folks behind. Completely? Okay, so we're not talking about putting the two of them together? I mean, or do you... I'll ask you more plainly. Do you feel like current initiatives toward inclusivity and diversifying music is leaving out the older sort? Is it a young man's, is DEI a young man's, a young woman's, a young person's game? Maybe, but I don't think it should be. Of course not. Right, right. <laughs> because there are so many composers, um, women composers, composers of color who have been around for a long time. Let me throw And just... have had to sit through being ignored by the big institutions. You know? Let me throw just one thing out there. If, there may be orchestras right around me who are doing this work, but they lost my attention a while ago, so I don't know. Yeah. I haven't gone to an actual in-person orchestral performance in years. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, so, and, and I think I think that's, that's important telling. to note because you are a person with the means of going to buy a ticket to go see one of the local orchestras. But just like they need to market and get my attention, they need to market and get your attention as right. well. They have a there big job to do. They there have a big go. job to do. Anyway, so uh, Bill Doggett, you know, sort of talks to how ageism is um, an issue uh, when we talk about DEI and diversifying the field. We also get into black exceptionalism and, and the many sort of new nuanced challenges that we face. Uh, where we get the conversation started, uh, Mr. Bill Doggett speaks to the continued challenges of arts equity, orchestral equity, post-George Floyd. His, his perspective on things cooling down in a similar way that they cooled down in 1967, 1968, uh, in a way that they cooled down in 1994, 1995, after the Rodney King stuff in in Los Angeles. You know, so sort of sort of the pattern nature um, mm. of it all as we try to move forward and do something a little different this time that's going to stick. So mm. uh, to transition us into the third movement, um, I wanted to uh, pull out one of Bill Doggett's suggestions. He has a SoundCloud that highlights the music of many different composers of color, one of which being Brian Raphael Neighbors. He has a piece of music called Nuclear Winter. It's a piece of music for two-channel fixed media. So you see where we're getting, even with composition, we're getting away from the physical instruments, the traditional instruments, and even getting into the electronic mm -hmm. sorts of things. I think, you know, again, as we approach um, All Hallows Eve, it's a really, um, uh, it's a really dark piece of music in that way that also ties in with winter that we've been kind of talking about mm. this Ovis as well. So here's a bit of Nuclear Winter by Brian Raphael Neighbors, and here's my conversation with the one. 
one and only Mr. Bill Doggett. So as the marketing agent of Adolphus Hellstark, Richard Thompson, and Anthony Davis during the mid-2000s, there are still challenges in spite of so-called racial reckoning and statements of solidarity with Black lives that blanketed the performing arts world in response to both the murder and to the worldwide protests. The principal challenge are artistic planners, Hmm. conductors, and orchestra boards, They are the ones that determine what music and what guest artists their audience will experience and come to expect more. I see this as hugely political and problematic. I've been repeatedly told that satisfying the expectations for popular programs and popular artists is paramount, that audiences prefer and expect a Joshua Bell a Hilary Hahn, a Josefa uh, Leibowitz, Emmanuel Axe, mm-hmm. Yuja Wang, and Lang Lang, that so-called unknowns or lesser knowns like Kelly Hall Tom- Tompkins, Ty Murray, Stuart Goodyear, Anthony McGill, and concerts led by, say, Roderick Klotz are, quote-unquote, too risky. They are not marquee names for their dominant white subscriber demographic and endowment that demographic that are used to the experience and will easily and immediately subscribe to these guest artist seasons with these names I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. They, Kelly Hall, Tompkins, Ty Murray, Stuart Goodyear, they are okay for Martin Luther King Day or Black History Month but no one is interested in hearing Kelly Hall, Kelly Hall Tompkins when they can hear Joshua Bell or Gil Shahan in the Korngold, in the Sibelius, in the Tchaikovsky Concerti. The Black and Latinx are not marquee names because artistic planners, conductors, and orchestra boards refuse to book them. Had Leonard Bernstein never given a chance to the young Andre Watts who replaced Glenn Gould, Uh, who was uh, ill-disposed at the last moment on a nationally broadcast, TV broadcast, Young People's Concert, where would we be? To be fair, I think there are certain names, for example, the uh, Connie Masons, who are really, you know, uh, moving along in in these bodies that, you know. The Connie Masons are moving along uh, in great part because of of the high profile exposure uh, that he had at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. That's true. Similarly, That's very Andre true. Watts. Andre Watts becomes who Andre Watts always was, but what takes the world stage because of the the, the TV exposure uh, that Leonard Bernstein uh, gave him through that last minute. I mean, it was supposed to be Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould uh, ended up canceling at the last moment. But fortunately, Andre Watts was ready, which is a whole nother thing that we'll sure. talk about later. It's this idea of black, uh, right. superior black artistic excellence. But go ahead. Right. Well, you know, what, what, I, what I also think about is the fact that everyone says that history repeats itself. And you and many others have made it very clear that this work did not begin in 2020. You know, this is generations old work. I wonder if there are mistakes 
that have been repeated from your you know perspective how does how do these moments following uh 2020 compare to moments following you know bloody sunday or the you know uh, the, the, those things from the past i don't see i do not see mistakes of a pro black movement of the past in the concert hall why because such never existed except mm-hmm. as a response to the mid-1970s Black Power Movement in programming, in embracing, recording, and highlighting, quote, the Black composer of the early to the mid-1970s era out of pressure and trying to appear, quote-unquote, relevant. Such composers included Freemus Fountain, mm-hmm. T.J. Anderson, George Walker, Adolphus Hellstork, Gail Smith, Rock Cordero, and reaching back to the earlier trailblazers William Grant Still and Ulysses K. Black men versus black women composers were programmed and celebrated. Florence Price had yet to be rediscovered. Margaret Bonds and Dorothy Wood Moore were seen as second tier or mm-hmm. second set composers behind the black men I just mentioned. But their works were never part of an ongoing subscription concert season programming. Theirs was a world of exclusivity for Martin Luther King and Black History Month concerts. Mm -hmm. The appointing of Black players in major symphonies was limited to the token one. New York Philharmonic had violinist Sanford Allen. LA Philharmonic had French hornist Bob Watt. Detroit Symphony had violinist uh, Joseph Striplin. And the Philadelphia Orchestra had violinist Booker Rowe. Again, all men, no women. Despite statements of solidarity with Black lives, the tokenism and orchestral makeup of major symphonic orchestras continues in 2021. So as we talk about the the you know the way that we're breaking out and and making sure that black women and men are are included and and start to be centered, you know, I think we have to talk about the nuance of age. It seems like the push toward diversity has also been a push toward highlighting uh the younger set, you know, folks from my generation and and even younger at this point. Is it a good thing or do you see uh, nuance in that conversation that has to be addressed. Are we leaving out people by focusing on the younger generation in our push for diversifying this, this repertoire? In my opinion, over the past 25 years, orchestra boards have been trying to assay how to reach out to and to bring into the fold younger audiences. This is a big conversation. The current emphasis on millennials in terms of composers, BIPOC composers in particular, is a false choice. Black and Latinx composers aged 20 to 35 who had who have just gotten their DMA degrees within the past three to six years do not, in my opinion, have the life experience mm. of compositional experience to, if you will, quote, go to the front of the line. When you have a massive and an impressive body of repertoire by landmark Black composers written between 1950 to 1990 that was forced in my opinion, into a state of invisibility by gatekeeping decision-making by artistic planners, conductors, and orchestra boards. I do not feel, despite the controversy that will arise out of this statement, the following statement, with the notable exception of the works of Brian Raphael Neighbors, the current works of Carlos Simon, Jesse Montgomery's, and others cannot rise to the occasion of the critical works of Ollie Wilson, Adolphus Hellstork, Ulysses K., Anthony Davis, 
Billy Childs, James Newton, Dorothy Rudd Moore, Undine Smithmore, Margaret Bonds, George Walker, and of course, William Grant Still. Mm -hmm. They do not have the lived experience or the kind of compositional depth demonstrated so brilliantly by these quote unquote over 40 composers. Sure. So it's, I hear that, but it's hard for, you know, folks right out of their DMA, especially with all of this student loan debt or whatever, to turn down the gig. So is there a, a deeper issue? How can these younger composers offer more room and more respect to the previous generation of Black composers? Well, part of the solution is to create mentoring pods, what I call mentoring pods with senior Black composers. Part of the solution is the programming and the curation. Why not program a Jesse Montgomery Strom alongside Anthony Davis' notes from the underground, mm. opposite uh, Adolphus Hellstork's Hercules, a symphonic poem that pays homage to President George Washington's slave cook. And then after intermission, Dvorak's New World Symphony or the Eighth Symphony or the Tchaikovsky Manfred Symphony or the Tchaikovsky Polish Symphony. Mm-hmm. All this, these juxtapositions are all about storytelling, about the human struggle through music over generations and percent a kaleidoscope of experience through music. And what I mean by saying all that is specifically looking at the programming idea, looking at the demographic that artistic planners have to uh, plan for in terms of the kinds of concerts. If we mix it up and juxtapose things like this, and in fact, uh, you know, add, let's say, Gabrielle Lena Frank in the yeah. mix, uh, or, or, or in particular, Tanya Leon. I think, and not to, and do it on a regular basis, rather than just during, you know, Women's History Month or Latino History Month or Black History Month. I think you're going to, I think the bigger impact is an impact that informs and educates and hopefully uplifts the conversation about the experience and the artistic excellence of a wide generation of non-white composers working and during this time and in the past 50 years. I think that's very important. Um, it's really, and you know, and going to your, your other point about how, yes, younger, it's certainly, of course, in this economy, younger composers should embrace uh, the opportunities. I think the, the, issue I have is in this overemphasis, this kind of blind emphasis uh, that, um, if you will, uh, pretends that anyone over 40 is no longer relevant, I think is misguided. There is a depth of experience, of lived experience, of compositional experience that, you know, under 35 composers would never have. I, again, with the exception of Brian Raphael Neighbors, who I am obviously a huge fan of, this, I mean, this brother is amazing. Uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Many of the younger generation, all of whom are gifted and all of whose voices deserve to be heard and, and all of whose careers deserve to be uh, uplifted, are not, do not have the lived experience and the compositional experience to speak to a depth that someone, let's say, Adolphus Hellstark, age 79, 80, or Anali Wilson in his 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. uh, or even Anthony Davis, 
when we talk about the generational issues, that's one thing. But another conversation that I'm seeing develop uh, a lot is the idea of Black exceptionalism and Black excellence. We used to really prop up that phrase, Black excellence, but people are beginning to critique that idea these days. I wonder if you think um, that's hurting Black people by and large by picking the one example or the two or three examples of Black exceptionalism. Is it possible to center not only Black individuals, but Black communities of music makers and then Black communities in general when we're talking about these funders, these donors, even, even patrons? I wonder what your ideas on, on that conversation is. There has always been this expectation and this demand for exceptionalism. You know, it is the, uh, if you look at, for example, Jackie Robinson, there were many excellent black uh, colored league baseball players before Jackie Robinson, but yet Jackie Robinson had to be so much better than his white counterparts that this is, you know, that he, for him to uh, be elevated uh, to this particular unique moment in time. The same with, uh, if we, you know, to be honest, the same with Leontine Price. Hmm. <laughs> you know, Leontine Price, I mean, there were others, there's Dorothy Maynard and Marion Anderson, but it was Leontine Price that takes the torch forward. You know, she had to be, she could be good, but she had to be outstanding. The same in a, in a similar way to Kathy Battle. There were other, I mean, there was Rory Grist, <laughs> who was, you know, a Colatura. There was, uh, who am I thinking? I'm always getting her name wrong. But anyway, there were others before her who were quite, quite, quite good. Um, but Kathy Battle, Kathleen Battle, took that torch forward. But there's been, but the challenge here, in my opinion, is there has always been this gatekeeping white artistic planner, white um, management uh, idea that, yes, we can have the one or the two. Uh, but no more. And I think that that's a problem for our community. Uh, when I say that, I mean, it is possible that there can be a Lena Horn and a Dorothy Dandridge mm -hmm. at the same time. There can be a Lena Horn, Dorothy Dandridge, and even an Eartha Kitt. All are, are good. All are outstanding, but they all have their different niche. And I think it's important that we you know, going forward that we look at the black community as being a village of multi-talented, multi-niche individuals all whose voices or artistic talents all deserve, um, frankly, equal time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, again, to that point, you know, centering not only black individuals, but black communities, you know, how, how can we um, make sure that we all are are moving forward because I can't help but to look at the ecosystem and see the the one or two you know exceptional examples there. But I want to see um, you know the industry really move forward in a more holistic way when we talk about engaging Black communities. Well, that is going to take quite a bit of time and of a number of different people coming together with the recognition that the, the long-term goal is more than, you know, just about me. There's a challenge when I, mm -hmm. where I'm going with that is that I have seen consistently 
since the seventies and eighties that um, uh, we as a people, not just in sports or in film, but also in classical music, um, we have kind of internalized this, uh, this need for exceptionalism to the point that where there can only be one of us. It's, it also goes back to, it's a throwback to another cultural uh, tendency this, uh, that is often coming out of the s- s- slave trade and the slavery experience of the crab in the barrel. Mm-hmm. This has been something that my parents talked about in their own experience where, you know, it is, there's only room for one of us to grab, you know, pulling, you know, there's one tribe trying to get away and this other's trying to pull it back. So this idea of being connected as a unified group, I think is important, but I think the challenge in our, in our, in our race, if you will, is this, this self-limiting or, or self, um, self-defeating. I think a lot of the historical challenge of the self-defeating or self-defeatism, if there's such a word, um, is sourced out of some of the experiences that we have as a people historically. That is to say, if you look at the slave trade and you look at the slavery plantation experience, in particular the slavery plantation experience where the uh, master... Um, rapes a slave woman and has who has bears a child who is more light skin mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to African dark skin, that child has been is allowed this exceptionalism and this different is and there's ascribed to that that child an opportunity that darker skinned other you know more African featured um, uh, ch- children aren't given. Um, so this idea of exceptionalism that is, how would I say, that where there is ascribed to Black people this expectation that you will have this opportunity if you, if you um, achieve a certain metric that is more white or European-centric, uh, I think that is historic in our community, and it's also problematic going forward. I don't know how you get rid of that in the long run, other than to do, uh, in my opinion, uh, to take some of the modeling of uh, Marcus Garvey, of the Nation of Islam, and the Black Power, Black Panthers movement, where you create more of a sense of a village, a larger village, where everyone has something to offer. Where, you know, yes, there may be the the chief or the king, but the king is more equitable mm-hmm. and recognizes <laughs> and gives more opportunity. The witch doctor has a role. Sure. The medicine doctor has a role. I think the idea of the black community moving forward into creating this monolithic idea of where we go is really probably not possible because we're not as monolithic uh, as uh, as some have ascribed to us. This whole mm-hmm. idea of being monolithic is a outer, a non-black ascribing of a characteristic. There, We have never been monolithic. The whole idea, of, you know, to take it back even to the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, the Harlem Renaissance is an exception, is a period of, the, of black except, exceptionalism. Right. But it is also a period of great diversity. 
you know, uh, people are talking, they'll talk about Duke Ellington, they'll talk about uh, Zora Neale Thurston, no, excuse me, Zora Neale Thurston, you know, Langston Hughes, Aaron Douglas, uh, but what, and even, let's say, um, Bessie, not Bessie Smith, but let's say Ethel Waters in particular. And what's missing from that lens, interestingly enough, is that a really important piece, an aspect, but not the dominating aspect, but the creative aspect is also coming from an LGBTQ place yeah. that has been hidden or suppressed. Right. I mean, Ethel Waters is the most important early, and because I work with on, this, on the whole Harry Pace thing and Black Swan records uh, with uh, the recent uh, WNYC Radio Labs, The Vanishing of Harry Pace, Ethel Waters was known. I mean, she had she was very out. Uh, I mean, it's been hidden, but she was very out. You know, lesbian, as was Ma Rainey. You mm-hmm. know, but you don't know about that. But irrespective of that, uh, you know, I mean, we're looking. What I'm mentioning that is to to talk about the fact that in that this idea of this great monolith, uh, this this equanimity that you know it's all the same. It was. It has never been the same. There have always been. You know, sub-segments. Um, so the village, is, the vill- going back to the village idea, is that the village is made up of disparate parts where everyone ideally can't, uh, you know, can make a contribution. So I think that that is where, I don't know that we're going to get there in the model idea that you're talking about, but I think that it has potential. The challenges are intricate and complicated and running around this or, or, or derived from this whole historical architecture of crab in a barrel mixed with this um, outer community, this uh, larger American white community metric that if a tokenism, essentially. There is something to be said about the importance of a lived experience of elders who can, who have been there, where some of these kids, younger people, are just now arriving, who certainly should be allowed to make their own mistakes. But, you know, there is value to some of the the old timers and the elders who already know and can assist the young people so they don't have to fall on their face. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so to that, how about you um, assist us in uh, in, uh, in exposing us, or maybe reminding us of a recording that we should uh, check out or or take a listen to that we may have you know overlooked in all of these conversations? Yes, I would direct people to SoundCloud to Anthony Davis's uh, "The Life and Times of Malcolm X." Uh, I have uh, while I was working with him in 2013, created a SoundCloud showcase of uh, major excerpts from the out-of-print CD that um, tells a rich story uh, that is relevant for 2021-22. When I rediscovered X in working with Anthony in 2013, uh, we were working on one of his newest chamber operas there on the second floor, um, and that had been the emphasis. And then I just happened to uh, pick up a CD box at Amoeba Records. <laughs> uh, and I was floored. I said, Anthony, this is brilliant. I mean, yes, Lear is great, but this is this has so much. You, I said to him, you know, 
you and Fulani, his cousin, Fulani Davis is the librettist, said you and Fulani have created a monument. You created a monument back in 84, 85. That speaks to now. Mm. I mean, I mean, how is it that you were so clever? And Anthony said to me, well, it, it is not so much that we were clairvoyant, but it is more of a statement of how things haven't changed. You know, I had a conversation with both Anthony and Cindy, that's his wife. I said, how is it possible that you have written in 1984, 85, an aria that has lingo that speaks to what happened to George Floyd? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing this. Part of the, the uh, text is, you know, you've had your knee, you've had your foot on me. For, for long as I can remember, you've always had your foot on me, always pressing. This was written in 83, 84. And so what I would recommend, recordings I'd recommend, go to SoundCloud to look at the Anthony Davis. Malcolm X is called X, the Life and Times of Malcolm X, to look at uh, also to uh, uh, explore. Uh, also on SoundCloud, on my SoundCloud, uh, uh, excerpts from Amistad by Anthony Davis, uh, Amistad is the story of the 1839 slave ship rebellion. Mm -hmm. There's really quite good music there. For this time post George Floyd, um, I would recommend two works. These are the two works of Black artistic and compositional excellence. The first is, of course, Joel Thompson's Seven Words of the Unarmed. And the second is, is the uh, young uh, uh, British. Black composer James B. Wilson's Remnants for Poet and Orchestra uh, with text by the Black uh, South African, I believe, or Black UK, I'll just make it simple, Black UK poet Yomi Sode. Uh, it was first uh, premiered by uh, Chenicky Orchestra uh, under the baton of Kevin John Edisei, the Black German conductor. It's on YouTube. It is breathtaking. It is one of the most, for me, uh, it is perhaps the most important and powerful work to emerge about Black lives uh, post-George Floyd ever today. It is just exceptional. But it's not just exceptional as a work that emerges in this time period, but it also speaks multi-generationally. It's incredible. And when I say multi-generationally, I'm saying that what James has captured and what Yomi Sodi captures in this uh, time-specific, as in 2020-specific era of the response and the outrage and the turmoil caused by the uh, murder of George Floyd, he's also tapped into something that goes back to the outrage and to the response that our ancestors must have experienced during the slave revolt of Nat, of Nat Turner during the time of the Reconstruction era when Ku Klux Klan was given, been given permission to shoot and terrorize Black mm -hmm. people at will, till, you know, forward to Emmett Till's murder, forward to the murder of Medgar Evers, forward to the murder of Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, it's all there. It's all there. You know, yes, it's specific to George Floyd. But it's but there's so much there uh, that speaks to so much more. Just as uh, Joel Thompson's "The Seven Words of the Last Seven Last Words of the Unarmed" speaks to not just Trayvon Martin 
and Mike Brown, but to to multi generations right. of experience of Black men who have been traumatized and Black families who have been traumatized by racial terror, which is really, I mean, racial terror is not just about um, white vigilante mobs burning down town, burning down you know, prosperous black neighborhoods like uh, Greenwood and Tulsa, but has to do very specifically with individuals, you know, which is the the case, you know, is the point of focus with uh, the seven last words of the unarmed, looking at how police violence uh, and police terror, which has had a legacy long before these younger people that he's, that are showcased in this piece, you know, how that still resonates in our time and for our times. Poet and Orchestra by one of the great English composers, one of the great Afro-English composers, James B. Wilson. Does that name sound familiar to you at all? I didn't know the name James B. Wilson. No, not at all. Yeah, so it's 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 black music being written everywhere. It's really incredible to to learn more about the the nuances of diversity and inclusion when we talk about uh, orchestral programming because it's one thing to highlight the names that we know, right? Mm-hmm. And it's another thing to turn the knob up on inclusivity and make sure that we're getting as many perspectives as possible. So huge shout out to Bill Doggett for, sorry, I'm losing my voice here for some reason, but, but shout out to, uh, couldn't be all the talking we've been doing, <laughs> could it? Uh, shout out to Bill Doggett for, um, you know, helping us continue to think about that. I know some of his language <laughs> when it comes to uh, the light that shined on the younger generation can seem sort of pointed because as a member maybe of of the in-between generation now, I'm not mm-hmm. among the youngest, but I'm rooting these young people on, especially just getting out of school and getting their careers going. I love to see them getting all of the opportunities that they can. And I recognize that there are 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old Black composers out here, women composers who have just been sitting around watching the institutions ignore them for all these generations. And now when it finally comes along, is going to the young folks. So I get it. I, I definitely get it. Do, do you do you see um, a disproportionate celebration of young composers in the continued diversity and inclusion you're seeing in uh, your radio programming, I'm sure I'm sure you're seeing more diversity. Are you noticing it leaning one way or another, or maybe it doesn't seem that way? There are peaks and valleys. Yeah, there are times when it seems very artfully put together, and sometimes it seems like somebody just filled for time. Sure, sure, uh, and I'm and I'm not trying to get 
political. Well, that's why <laughs> in, in, in that I'm, way. I'm tiptoeing. But, but but I guess mm-hmm. my I guess really what I'm getting at is I would see the name Adolphus Hale Stork on programming and and even you know across the country in the other I programming I'm going. doing. I, I will I will see that name. So it's not just the younger composers who are being platformed digitally, mm-hmm. but maybe in 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 live orchestra programming, it's a different story that right. that challenge is harder to. To yeah, deal with. I see where you're coming from. At this point, um, uh, William Grant still is We've heard r- it. right in there with with Aaron Copeland. It. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, and no shade. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that he was the first black composer that I started with, mm-hmm. you know, back in the aughts. And... Uh, he he's canon, right? Right at this point, and 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 that gets into again some of the the nuance of the conversation because William Grant Still and Florence Price are platformed right. at this point. Right. We 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 know their names, and they're tipping the other way, if you ask me. So, but at the same time, there are still so many people who need to know. We can we we there are books written on the themes in the third movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Mm-hmm. You know. We don't have that the the I hate to use the word repetitive, but we don't we don't have the repetitive familiarity still right, right. of You're those right. works. You know, I I can hum most of William Grant Still's Afro American Symphony, his first symphony. That doesn't mean that its themes and its ideas are in the zeitgeist in the same way. So there's You're just right. a lot of catching up to do. So it, it it it's it's hard to balance sometimes. Should we be hearing William Grant Still one again when? the music that should be as familiar as everything else isn't yet because it's right. playing that catch-up game. So to uh, answer to the flip side of that question, uh, I'm seeing a lot of Jesse Montgomery. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of Devante Hines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adolphus Hale Stork is becoming a familiar fixture. Yeah. So um, I would say to the casual listener of classical radio, it probably sounds like we are going a hundred miles an hour. This change, your change is coming at them quick, <laughs> and and it's and it's here to stay. Period. Period. So all I'm saying is, it it. Could, all I'm saying is that um, to the casual listener, it seems that. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to get a little bit deeper into this in the triloquy this oh, week, good. but to uh, to get us there, you know, we've been listening to examples of trills throughout the repertoire to get us into the fourth movement. So I just wanted to take a quick moment again, with this being the last opus before Halloween, to talk about a, a slightly different type of musical ornament. So again, the trill is, you know, uh, two notes uh, repeated uh, very rapidly. Rapidly. Well, if you only do one, that's called a mordant. If you take a note, and, and that's it, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's what we get to. There's actually a very, very, very famous, a, a well-known, a very much repeated piece of music that uh, starts very famously with a set of mordants. And, you know, with this being Halloween, I thought we would take the opportunity to listen to it. A bit of Bach's Toccata in D minor to get us into the fourth movement. Problem 
putting that on or highlighting that around the holiday season because it's kind of cool. The same with things like um, Bernard Herrmann's Psycho Suite, all, all of all sure. of that music. So we spellbound. have we spellbound. We have the music that's tried and true in the repertoire that sometimes I think is appropriate to highlight because of the place we are on the calendar or or just the funness to to revisit it. You might not get Takata and Fugue for me any other time. So <laughs> <laughs> all I'm saying is that Isle of the Dead pops up a lot. Yeah, through throughout the year, you know. Yeah, but right now? Oh yeah, during oh during the <laughs> Halloween season. <laughs> all right. Well we're here in the final movement uh where I keep it trill the best I can. And this Oh, week, that's right. You didn't tell me what this was going to be. And and this week um we're we're coming home. We're coming home to Minnesota. This is the first thing I'm going to say. <laughs> when Triloquy was first getting started and we were tied with NPR, I felt very iffy about speaking to the Minnesota Orchestra one way or another because I didn't want to make it seem like, oh, I'm speaking against my employer or trying to ruin a relationship, X, Y, and Z. But with this being an independent project, I feel a responsibility to speak to this thing that has just been set up in my in my spirit ever since I heard about it. So I, I only give that, uh, that, that pre-talk, that disclaimer as a means of saying, I'm not shitting completely on the Minnesota Orchestra even though I feel like I've had to tiptoe in the past, I just think it's very important to name this issue because it's one that is repeated across the country and will and will continue to snowball if we don't really pay attention to it and actually talk about it. Okay, that, that's that's my disclaimer. So the Minnesota Orchestra has commissioned a new piece of music to honor George Floyd. And everything that happened during the summer of 2020, this is just the streets talking. I, I, I looked on the internet. I couldn't uh, find an official announcement, but this is something that I know about. The composer in question is not a composer I'm going to name because I think that's beside the issue. What I will say about the composer is that he does not live here. He is not from here as, as far as my knowledge and did not experience firsthand mm -hmm. the challenges of living here in the Twin Cities during the summer, the early summer of 2020, following the murder of George Floyd. So first and foremost, Scott, we have the Minnesota Orchestra, the hometown band, wanting to engage this conversation in some way by commissioning a new piece of music. That in itself, I see as a good thing. Not many people would, would argue that, right? Mm -hmm. How significant in your opinion, is it for that musical perspective to come from someone who can speak to what it was like? Someone like you, who, despite uh, the rules and regulations, needed to get off the live air and to get home to safety because you didn't know what would happen to you or your car or whatever radar between the radio station and home. You know, what it felt like to hear the gunshots overnight, to have the grocery, all the grocery stores, all the gas stations closed, to see the military occupation, to worry about, are you going to be turned into Swiss cheese on your way somewhere? That is a very specific, I guess I'm answering the question for you, mm -hmm. but that is a very specific experience that I feel like a musical representation of that time right. or to honor the life of George Floyd, that is a perspective that the person must have. What, 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 are, your, what are your opinions on that? Seeing the businesses and the places that you love to go boarded up, 
seeing uh, barriers and fences mm -hmm. being put up around uh, the precincts in your neighborhood, um, to know that there is a drone flying at 13,000 feet or something just over the in, city. Just in case. Isn't that dark? Isn't um, that dark? I would think it would be paramount to have someone who experienced that write the music. That's what I think. Let's sprink, let's sprinkle in some good. <laughs> Again, I'm I'm, I'm not saying anything trick bad. or treat, right? So, <laughs> huh. um, back in I don't know who you're talking about. So what I'm back, saying is yeah. that's that's just my opinion. Back in June of 2020, the Minnesota Orchestra officially broke ties with the Minneapolis Police Department saying they weren't going to use them for security for their concerts. What y'all are doing is out of hand. We don't trust y'all. So I'm mixing that in because the Minnesota Orchestra is an institution that has the ability to understand the nuance of, of certain collaborations, certain relationships, asking certain people to do certain things, which, in my opinion, makes this selection not a bad selection, but one that lacks the vision to really understand that the folks here on the ground have a perspective on what happens, a perspective, dare I say, that is far beyond what anyone living somewhere else could ever put on paper, mm -hmm. could ever put into music. And it's so difficult to have this conversation because we celebrate, again, when young composers are given the platform, when the, when the major institutions are commissioning them, getting their works put out there, and we're forgetting that there are folks who have have always been here. What this lays bare, Scott, is the fact that for um, composers that fall outside of that Beethoven, Brahms, Rachmaninoff, especially the living composers, young or old, really, at this point we're seeing, it's nearly impossible as a member of a community to get your community's orchestras to play your music unless you have been tried and tested by some of the nation's other large institutions. Uh. It's almost like you have to prove your worth by being lucky enough for one of them to play your music and then maybe another one will play your music and another one will play your music. Mm. But unless you get into that system, unless you get into that orchestral good old boys club, so to speak, it can never happen. And I'm, I'm upset. I, I find it hard to believe that there is no one here in the Twin Cities, a so-called traditional composer or otherwise, who could have been commissioned to really tell this story that hit this community in a very specific way, impacted the world, impacted the entire world, yes, absolutely, but hit this specific community in a very, very specific way. I feel like we have to speak to this chink in the, in the armor in uh, th this this little you know rusty nail in the system, because as we move forward, we're going to see more and more orchestras continue to exclude by way of what they define as inclusion. We have put this composer and this composer and this composer that all of these other orchestras have platformed and accepted. We're putting them into our mix, so of course we're being inclusive. But if that inclusivity doesn't involve anyone from your community, certainly 
family when it comes to writing things that folks from that community have a unique perspective on that's not actually doing the work. Right. And as we continue to move forward and see some progress, see some, you know, some good things come from these large institutions, we have to continue to be critical and learn how to celebrate the folks that they platform, especially the young composers of color, and critique when there is room to to move forward a little dust in the corners mm -hmm. as, as, as i say yeah am i am i am i reaching i feel like i asked that a lot of triloquies <laughs> i feel weird about this because one because i ex because i again i celebrate the composers the composer in, in particular that the minnesota orchestra is is platforming I'm, I'm again i'm not naming their name because this isn't about them it's about the bigger issue of orchestras not seeing their communities. If I were a composer here who had the ability to write uh, to my experience, as my experience, and to represent uh, the the larger local experience of that summer of that time, I would be upset. To me, that would be the local orchestra saying, "Actually, I don't care about what you have to say. We don't even care to look or do research or network or be in contact with folks on the ground who know local artists, local composers. We'll just go uh, and select someone off of this list that the large institutions have already accepted. Mm -hmm. Make sure that." they're black and 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 move from there i think that's an issue that has to be discussed let me just answer your first question i'm you will never hear me tell you that your opinion on something is wrong that's not that's not what my job here is to do and maybe, you don't maybe you not don't, that it's wrong but just to make sure i'm not being extra radical extra uh uh, contrarian, you know, because it's it's easy for folks to 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 see my critique with it, you know, this specific critique as that. Oh, it's never enough. It's always going to be something. But I think there's there's a real point to be made here. The fact that a local person is not at the head of this new creation on a subject that impacted the local community in mm -hmm. a unique way. Yeah, I just think that um, you have a perspective. And I'm not going to in any way extinguish you sharing it. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I appreciate that. Now, I thank you. But, but you see, the thing is, a lot of people like myself, when you share a perspective that we don't think about, you might be embarrassed. You might want to cover your eyes and go, oh, my God, I did that. Or I didn't see that or whatever it is. But that's the only way that you get past it. That's the only way that you, you grow. So this you is OK. So this is a, a, a real question. With that in mind, what you're saying, should that should I be thinking about that when I approach a Minnesota orchestra in, in this example and say, hey, why didn't you do this? Or I feel like you should have done this or it's important for your organization to honor local communities and the individuals within them for this reason. Should should I come with kid gloves? I mean, it's, it's coming full fire and brimstone going to. Uh, going to not reach or not be heard by, by these folks. The way that you just laid it out here on the podcast, I don't see how any arts organization would not be able to sit through that. Okay. So there we are. So there we are. So if you're listening, Minnesota, what, you, didn't, you didn't raise your voice. You didn't swear. You didn't do nothing. You, what? I, I remain calm. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope I'm being heard. I want to honor, you know, if, if you happen to know the composer who got this commission, I need you to know that I honor this composer. This is a composer who's a part of the Triloquy family, for goodness sakes, you know, uh, has been a guest on the show. So I honor them. And I've actually been in contact with them. And we're going to try to um, 
coordinate ways mm -hmm. for them to talk with local artists, folks on the ground, so that the perspective can be as genuine as it can be, considering the selection that the Minnesota Orchestra made. So I'm not on social media saying, oh, fuck them for X, Y, and Z, and you should have chose someone else and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make it right. And maybe that's where this calm spirit is coming from. Oh. Because I remember, I remember, you remember, we all remember what it felt like for the world to just fucking stop, you know, and then especially me during that time yeah. to have to drive to work and, you know, and there are uh, M16s everywhere and maybe maybe someone sees a black man and gets a little nervous, you know, you, you can't put those things past the, the system, you know. Right. So anyway, everyone has their story of being here at ground zero following the murder of George Floyd. And I feel like that perspective has to be shown and it is the responsibility of an arts institution to understand the point mm -hmm. that I'm trying to make. So let's pressure our institutions to see us, to see local communities, to see the folks that they are built to support and and to engage instead of continuing to allow them to just, you know, solidify this so-called orchestral industrial complex on our backs because again they'll say oh we're being diverse we're doing this we're doing that and ignore you know a big issue mm -hmm. like like this so you know that that's that that's that for for this week so happy halloween everyone be safe if you have kids check the candy trust me no one is giving away cannabis a cannabis candy oh if, that if, is the if they are please tell me where that house is <laughs> i've got like i've got like eight different costumes that i'm gonna change right uh go get your vaccine and your boosters wear your mask and um say hi to your dad yeah say hi to your dad and keep it true we'll see y'all next week